We are in Acts 22. We're picking up where we left off last week. We've been studying the story of God's church and how it's, it's been expanding and it's been growing. And we've been looking at the missionary, Paul. And last week, if you were with us, we saw Paul kind of come before this group of people and share his testimony. We saw how Paul... Um, God had this opportunity to share how he used to be this religious zealot persecuting God's people. And now God showed up and transformed his life and opened his eyes. And everything is radically different. And where we kind of ended last week in Acts 22, uh, verse 21, as Jason kind of shared and, and taught on last week, I want to pick up where, where we paused Paul's story. He's standing before this crowd. And he's sharing something Jesus had taught Paul. And he says, go, in verse 21, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul, again, as he's recapping his story, he's sharing what God is doing. And that, that the Lord has commissioned him to go to the Gentiles. And up to this point, the people, this Jewish audience that Paul has, they're hanging on every word. They're in it. They're, they're, they're paying attention. They want to know what Paul is saying. And then to me, something interesting happens. We look in verse 22, and Jason shared this last week that up to this word, they listened. Then it says they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. It says, As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and, and flinging dust into the air. How many, how many of us can say, like, that's pretty angry? That's, that maybe seems like an over-the-top reaction. All he said was, I want to go hang out with this group of people. And they start taking off their clothes and throwing temper tantrums and screaming, screaming out loud, this guy shouldn't even be on our planet. He shouldn't be allowed to live. Now, at first, that seems kind of like maybe they need some counseling. Maybe an overreaction a little bit. Like, all he said was he wanted to hang out with Gentiles. But I think what we can lose if we just read this story too quickly is how much animosity there was between the Jews and the Gentiles. We don't understand that these groups hated each other. It would be terrible example coming your way. Deep breath. Brace yourself. All my Broncos fans, how we feel about the Oakland Raider fans. That's what's going on here. And Oakland Raider fans, we love you, but you just root for the wrong team. And it's how you feel about us. We don't get along. It's oil and water. It's two groups of people that don't ever agree on anything, and they have it out for one another. My two favorite football teams are the Broncos and whoever's playing the Raiders. I will root for them. Ever. I'll even root for Tom Brady. It's fine as long as the Raiders lose. Um, don't email me about that, please. Um, but that's what's going on here. These groups can't stand each other. And so when Paul, this Jewish man who they had respected, says, I want to go hang out with the Raiders. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't. No. And they lose their cool. They go a little bit insane. But what I want us to do this morning is as best as we are able, I want us to enter in to Paul's story. And I want us to put ourselves in his situation this morning. Because what has blown me away this week as I've studied is how we see just such a confident, secure person in Paul. 
in the face of tough circumstances. Paul is a confident man. And I don't think his confidence is in who he is necessarily, but who Jesus is making him to be. And I think there's a lot we can learn. And so let's pick up in verse 24. Again, this council, this people that he's been sharing his testimony with, they want him dead. They're furious. They can't stand it. They're stirring up all sorts of commotion. It's, It's about to tilt and get out of control. And look what happens. It says in verse 24, The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman and that he had bound him. There is a ton going on in this first part of Paul's story that we're going to look at today. And the first thing that I want us to see is how confident Paul is in the midst of a hard situation in who he is. Paul knows who he is. And again, I want us entering into this story for a little bit this morning. And so first off, we see this this character, this guy, this tribune. And we'll see next week that his name is actually Lysias. Lysias is a tribune in the Roman army. This is no longer just a soldier, but he's a man who has political aspirations. He would desire to one day more than likely run for a seat in the Senate. And so he's left, he's just, I'm a soldier in the military behind. He's ran for this office. He's an elected official. And so for Lysias, this tribune, the people's uh, love, their acceptance. Um, it is very important to his career, his goals, and where he would like to go. And what we're going to see through our story this morning is that his motivation is, I want to understand what's going on with Paul because I'm afraid for my future. If the people riot, if the people hurt him, if everything, uh, my future my potential office, my, my career is in danger. And so his first opportunity to kind of get to the bottom of what's going on is he relies on his past. He relies on more than likely what was a military background. And so he's like, you know what we could do? We could examine him by flogging. That's back to school. I know some of us are probably taking kids to health checkups, sports physicals. Maybe you've just been into the doctor recently. Anybody been in for an exam and the doctor comes in and he busts out a whip? He's like, take off your shirt. It's time for your exam. If that's happened, call the cops and find a new doctor. Like that's not the exam we want. But that's what Lysias is going to do because he knows there's no way Paul will be able to lie Or hide the truth. I'm going to get the truth. And my past tells me that I can get the truth by taking Paul and flogging him. This was a horrific event. It was not uncommon for people to die from a Roman flogging. They'd figured out that if they hit you 40 times, you would die. So they they were gracious and only hit you 39. 
They would take your hand. They would strip you down. They would drive you to your knees. They would tie your hands to two poles so that all of the muscles were exposed in your back. So all, everything was as vulnerable as possible. And then a Roman centurion who was an expert in torture and would make any of you crossfitters out there look like a wuss would grab this whip that would have strands of leather with bone and glass and pieces of just metal and things hanging off the end and he would just start to beat you until you told them what they wanted to hear. And it is in this very moment, Paul is stripped. His hands are tied. He's ready for the whip. Again, enter into this story. Put yourself in Paul's position. What's going through your mind? I've passed out from fear five minutes ago if I'm Paul. And yet in that moment, he has this confidence about the story God has given him. To pause and say, wait a second. Is this lawful for you to do to a Roman citizen who's not been convicted or condemned of any crime? Paul, in this moment, has the ability to to see that, man, I have an opportunity here. I have a card to play. And an underlying theme through our story this morning is that Paul has a super high view of authority. And he recognizes that this centurion and this tribune are not acting legally. And so he asks a question. Can you do this to a Roman? And the centurion then is his job. As soon as Paul brings, puts this idea on the table about being a Roman citizen, um, he kind of calls a timeout. And do you have any Saved by the Bell fans in the room? Anybody raised on Saved by the Bell? Remember when Zach Morris, there were more in the first service. So some of you may not get this. Young kids, ask your mom and dad. Um, Zach Morris used to call timeout. And he would break the fourth wall and like Screech and Slater would just be like frozen. And then he would talk to me as I was like getting dressed, eating cereal, getting ready for school. Zach would have a conversation with the camera. That's what the, that's what the, the centurion does here. He calls a timeout. He says, I got to go talk to the tribune. He just put Roman citizenship on the table. And at this time, it was Ill, highly illegal to even question or detain a citizen of Rome. That's how feared Rome was. And this centurion has now realized Paul's a Roman citizen. We've not only detained him, we've put him in chains, we've put him in prison, in prison, we've questioned him, we've stripped him down, we've tied him down, and I was about to beat this guy. We've got to get to the bottom of what's going on. The tribune rushes in and he questions Paul, and I love his question is, are you a citizen? He says, yes. And then his response is kind of, again, he wants to protect his future. And so he's hoping, maybe this guy isn't really a Roman Maybe he just bribed an official and bought his citizenship. He says, I bought a citizenship by a large sum. Anybody can become a citizen if you've got enough money and you find a corrupt official. Terrible analogy coming your way. Here's, what, here, here's how I think of this. So do I have, again, show of hands, this is participation part of the sermon, any Colorado natives? And they're born and raised Colorado. Okay. Quite a few. Man, we got a lot in this church. How about Loveland? Do we have like Loveland natives? Okay, good for you guys. So we moved here. My family and I moved here six years ago. We are not natives. Um, And for the first four and a half years we were here, I worked in the restaurant industry. And I got to talk to hundreds, if not thousands, of people. 
And I'm about to stereotype all of you Colorado natives. And so give me some grace, but it's also probably true. There is this, those of you who grew up in Colorado, arrogance, I would say, that this is your state. Loveland's your town. And us transplants are clogging up the, the roads, cluttering up the grocery aisles, driving up home prices, and yeah, you're happy we're paying our taxes and whatever, helping the economy, but you're really Colorado. We're not. I'm not. And I'm seeing head nods, like I'm about to get an amen, like we're going to go charismatic here. Like, that tells me I'm striking a nerve. That's what the Tribune is hoping for here. He's hoping, he's not really Roman, just like I'm not really Loveland. I just moved here and love this city, and I'm Loveland, dang it. Um, I don't care what you natives say. I'm not moving. Um, now I lost my train of thought. The Tribune is hoping Paul's not really a native Roman. He's not really a citizen, because if he is, this Tribune's in a lot of trouble. Everything just went out the window. And Paul's able to say, no, because of who I am, he knows his story. And he's able to say, I'm a citizen by birth. And look at verse 29. It says, those who were about to examine him withdrew immediately. They run away from Paul and they're afraid. His confidence in the story that God has given him spares him in this moment an incredible amount of pain and suffering. Because he's sure of who he is. Some of us this morning need to be sure that God has given you a story. And that story matters. And God can use it to do unbelievable things. So Paul goes back to his jail cell. And the next day it says in verse 30, not only do we see a confidence in who he is, but we're going to see a confidence in what he knows. In verse 22, verse 30, it says on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, that's Lysias, he unbinds Paul and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Chapter 23, looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Again, there's there's a ton of going on in this passage. There's a ton going on in the life of Paul as he's sharing his testimony, as he's um, walking the road that God has for him. And what's, what we're seeing here is this tribune, Lysias, has learned, I, okay, I can't do the military option. I can't beat the truth out of him, but I still need to know what's going on because my future is on the line. And so the next day he decides rather than go military, he'll go religious. And so he gathers the chief priests and this council, these religious leaders, he brings them together and he he commissions them to get to the bottom of why is Paul making everybody's life miserable in Jerusalem right now? Help me get some answers. 
And this council is formed. Paul comes in. He sits down. Let's enter back in. Imagine you're Paul. You're sitting before rulers and authorities who hold your fate in their hands. Would you be quick to speak? I love the insight Luke gives us here that Paul looks intently at them. He's not afraid of them. This is a confident soldier in Christ's army who knows the truth that he has a mission. He's got work to do and so he speaks and he speaks boldly. He speaks boldly but also intimately. He calls them brothers. He starts out, he's the first one to speak which I think in and of itself is courageous. He says, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. What I don't think Paul is doing here is saying he's sinless, that he's never made a mistake. I don't think the, that's the argument Paul is making. Elsewhere, he will, he will admit he's the chief of sinners, and he's just shared his testimony. And so I believe this is a man humbly dependent on grace and radically transformed by the gospel of, of Jesus. What I think he's sharing here is saying, guys, I'm sitting before you, and I've done nothing wrong. My conscience is clear. I don't deserve the treatment that I've received. I'm in good standing before the Lord. And the response from Ananias, which if we believe church history, Josephus will, will, will record that this high priest specifically, this Ananias, was the most corrupt high priest in Israel. That less than a decade from this story, Ananias is going to be assassinated by some uh, Jewish freedom fighters because it's discovered that all along he's been in the pocket of Rome and oppressing God's people. But Ananias is sitting there knowing he's corrupt, knowing his conscience is not clear. And so when Paul, with conviction and integrity, is able to say, I know who I am, and I know what I've done, and I don't deserve to be treated this way. Ananias, I think, feels conviction because he knows his conscience is not clear. And he turns to one of his buddies and says, well, one of you just slap the taste out of this guy's mouth. I can't stand it. He's fed up with Paul. He's feeling the weight of his own sin. And so somebody hit this guy. And then we get a different sense of Paul. Paul, Mr. He's very humble. He's very respectful of authority. He's been sharing his testimony. His heart is for the gospel to go forward. I think we get truth, but he also kind of loses it a little bit, which makes me feel so good. Makes like I identify with Paul losing his control just a little bit in this story because they threaten to hit him, and his response is, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's weird. Like, if you come up to me afterwards and you're like, Nate, you're such a whitewashed wall. Like, cool. You're weird. I'm going to go drink more coffee. That doesn't connect with us today. That's not an insult that we throw around often. But Paul knows what he knows. And I believe he was cutting straight to the heart of the issue with Ananias and this council. And not only that, but he was bringing them back to the Bible that they all would have known. In Ezekiel 13, Ezekiel prophesies and speaks about the false prophets who were leading God's people astray and were pretending 
to be followers of Yahweh, but they really weren't. In Ezekiel 13, this is what the prophet Ezekiel says, because they've misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it that it shall fall. What Ezekiel is saying and what I believe Paul is quoting or bringing this council's mind and attention back to is the fact that they were pretending. They were masquerading like holy people, God-fearing, men of conviction and honor and integrity. And he's saying, you essentially are like putting new paint on a crumbled down ruin of a wall. And Ananias is offended. And Paul goes on to say, not only that, but he says, are you judging me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you would have me struck. Paul knew his Bible. These men knew their Bible. And so he's going back to the words of Moses in Leviticus 19, and he's, where Moses says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. I think Paul has a very high view of authority and he's pointing out their hypocrisy. He knows that they're not operating in accordance with the law. He's had no uh, trial. He's been convicted of nothing. No one's heard his side of the story really yet. And yet you're going to order me to be slapped in the face. You have no right to do that. That's not what the word of God that you guys are called to uphold, defend, and protect. And so Paul is calling out their hypocrisy But then the group that's gathered, they've got a problem with how he went about doing it. And Paul's response, I think we all can take a a page from and learn from. Because the group that's gathered there said, "Would would you revile God's high priest? This is God's ruler and authority. You're going to speak to him in this way? I love Paul's response. I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Paul knows the word, and in a moment when he realizes he's gone too far, he reminds himself what is true. He reminds himself what is right. And I believe here we see a humility and a repentant heart on display where Paul says, you know what? I'm right in what I said. And I think there's even some prophecy going on in the fact that Ananias is going to be struck down. Paul's not wrong in what he said but he's not right in how he said it. I have to wonder this morning how many of us, maybe we're right in our beliefs, but the way we go about putting those on display isn't handled well. And we need to take a lesson from Paul. Operate more in humility. Operate more in, an, uh, in a belief that God is in control and it's less about us being right and more about how can we put God on display in an appropriate way. Because this same Paul, who quickly reminds himself, is going to go on to write Romans 13, where he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul has a high view of authority. And when he realizes he has offended and stepped out of line, he comes back quickly. He's quick to posture himself humbly. Because he knows what he knows. He knows the truth. And when he realizes he's gone too far, he's confident enough in the grace of Christ to step back. 
Not only that, as the story goes on, we see a confidence in just where God has placed him. Verse 6. says, when Paul perceived, that's an intimate knowledge. Paul has this insight, this perception as he looks out at this council. He sees an opportunity that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. I'm so glad divisions in the church don't happen anymore, that they got this all out of the way back then, and now we're nothing but rainbows, puppy dogs, and unity. There should have been more laughter there. That's a joke. That doesn't happen. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Paul's sitting before this council, and he sees an opportunity. And I think two things are happening. First, just based off of Paul's character, based off of Paul's testimony, based off of Paul's witness and the missionary journeys that he's been on, I really do think Paul's first and foremost, he looks out and he recognizes, man, some of these guys are Pharisees like I was. And the Pharisees believe that God is going to work through life after death. And just like Jesus rescued me and opened my eyes, and I now believe and have a hope in the resurrected Christ, I might be able to share the gospel with these guys. There is a hope and a resurrection, and I have an inroad to make much of Jesus. I believe that's Paul's first hope. But I think Paul's also very smart, and he recognizes this context, and he goes, man, these are Raiders fans and Broncos fans. If I bring up football, they're going to forget the purpose of why they came together to focus on me, and they're going to start fighting with each other. I can get them distracted. And so I think Paul enters in. He, he enters in first with the hope that someone would believe. And we see here what happens is exactly that. They get off purpose. Was this council formed to get, get to the bottom of their disagreements over angels and spirits and the resurrection? No. They were formed to get to the bottom of what's going on with Paul. And they got off mission. They got sidetracked by a side issue. Church family, I wonder what are some side issues that could distract us, that could get us off the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. That is why we're here. That's why God has brought us to Loveland. And we would be wise to learn and see and go, man, God, don't let us get off mission. Don't let us get sidetracked and divided and turned to bickering over things that aren't what we are supposed to be about. And it escalates to the point where now there's Pharisees who were gathered together to judge Paul are now defending him. We don't find anything wrong with this guy. We love Paul. They put on their Team Paul t-shirts. They're all about him. And it's getting violent. It's getting bad to where Lysias, the guy who is going to beat him and persecute him, is now rescuing him, keeping him safe, pulling him out of harm's way. But 
I'm challenged by the fact that in the midst of a very tough circumstance, Paul's able to look out and see, man, there's an opportunity here. And God, through the confidence he's placed in Paul, through the security Paul has in the story God is writing, and, and knowing that there's still things that Paul has left to do, Paul's able to speak boldly. He's able to enter in well. He's able to make much of Jesus. And he ends this day physically safe in what looked like was a desperate situation where there was no hope. God uses Paul, his wiring and his story to spare Paul pain and suffering. But what's been the most powerful for me is not just looking at the confidence of Paul in the midst of a tough situation, but how Paul too needed comfort. Verse 11, where we'll wrap up. It says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So we preach verse by verse, line by line. We tackle books of the Bible. We believe the Bible is uh, God's perfect, inspired word. Uh, this is true, accurate, and base your life off of. I'm going to set this over here for a second. And just for a moment, I want to use my imagination. Because here's when I, I want to enter into this story. When I picture what's going on that night, I, just, I see this picture of Paul. He's in his jail cell. And just, I see him, head in his hands. Paul's a man of prayer. I think he's probably praying. I think he's probably thanking God for seeing him through the day. I think he's probably asking God to keep him safe one more day, that he might have an inroad. I could see, see Paul being, uh, spending time meditating and thinking about those Pharisees that, that he tried to bridge a road with and praying for them. Um, but the picture that keeps coming back to my mind is just a worn out, exhausted follower of Jesus. He's locked in a prison. He's been in a riot. He's been screamed at. He's been stripped of his clothing. He's been tied to posts. He was moments away from being beaten. It's been a really hard road. And I think Paul is just empty. I wonder who walked in here this morning and it's just empty. And what I love about the details that Luke gives us is as I picture Paul just head in his hands, praying, full of faith, but lacking on energy. I just get this picture in my mind of the, the risen king of Jesus, the same Jesus that met him on the road to Damascus, who blinded him and rescued him. The same Jesus in Revelation 19 we see coming back with a sword out of his mouth and a robe dipped in blood. He cares enough in a moment when Paul needs comfort to come into this prison cell. And again, using my imagination, I just see Jesus just rubbing his shoulders as he whispers in Paul's ear, take courage. That's maybe best translated, be of good comfort. In the Old Testament, when they started taking uh, the Hebrew and turning it into Greek, in places where uh, authors would say, do not be afraid, they would use this word in the Greek. 
to be of good comfort. And Paul is this beacon of confidence and this bold zealot for the Lord. But at the end of the day, he needs the comfort that can only come from Christ. And Jesus is present. He makes time for Paul. He comes into the jail cell. And I believe we see three ways very quickly that Paul is comforted. First, he's comforted just by the presence and company of Christ. That Jesus came and stood with him in that cell. Secondly, I think we see that that Paul is comforted by the command of Christ. This is not a suggestion. This isn't Jesus leaning over and saying, Paul, it'd be a good idea if you took some courage. This is a command from our Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. He's saying, be comforted. And then not only that, but he says, you, as you've testified to the facts in Jerusalem, I think that's a little attaboy from Jesus. Saying, you did what you were supposed to do. You came here and you made much of me. Good job. You're not responsible for the results. You're just responsible to testify. And you did it. And then I think finally he's comforted by the charge that comes from Jesus. You still have to testify in Rome. The work is not yet done. So be courageous. Take courage. Don't be afraid. You'll make it through tonight. I've got your back. And there's still work to be done. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And I can think of no better way to kind of close this and transition and put this into practice than to observe communion. Thinking about how this story ends after a a bold and confident story from Paul. That it would end with Paul communing with Jesus. And needing the presence of his Savior in that quiet time. I want to give us some time to be quiet and to be in the presence of our Savior. And so this morning, I want to invite you in to just do business with the Lord. Maybe you're not confident in who he's made you to be in the story that he's given you. Maybe you've not been confident in where God has you and you find yourself looking at other people's lives and situations and going, man, I wish I was more like that. I wish life was more. No, God has you in a place for a purpose. Embrace it. Let it be used to make much of Jesus just like Paul did. Maybe this morning you've come in here and you're just, you're like Paul. It's the end of the day and you're like, what did I do to deserve that? And you just feel beaten down. The cool thing about this story is it's not about Paul. It's about what Jesus does in and through Paul. And Paul is not some super Christian who's more a son of God than you or I are a son or daughter of God. And Jesus sends his spirit to comfort and be present with you just like he did with Paul. And so this morning, if you need to take comfort, I would just encourage you, follow the command of our king and take the courage that he offers that comes only through his shed blood and his broken body on the cross.